On episode 119 of the Nerd By Word, we press play on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy to see just how well it holds up 20 years later. Is it still swinging strong or all out of web game? Raimi Revisited starts now. Welcome into another exclusive episode of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that can no longer access their web fluid because they accidentally used acne scrub over the supersized zit on their wrist. Dave and I are here today to embark on a series of episodes centered around revisiting the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. It only feels right as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the release of the first film to see if the tights still fit. Today we'll be looking at that exact film in our Byword Big Talk to see what holds up and what our holdups are. But first, our journalism sense is tingling, because it's time for... Nerd News! Dave, have you found your prodigal messiah? You know what? I'm going to be honest with you, man. I don't know. Uh, So we have a report from The Hollywood Reporter that producer Dan Lin is in talks to become the grand Pumbaa of the DC Extended Universe for Warner Brothers Discovery Shyamalama Ding Dong. Um, So apparently he is supposed to potentially take on the role similar to that of MCU head honcho Kevin Feige. Now, the report uh, from The Hollywood Reporter, ha ha, uh, uh, seems to be pretty much set in stone, but Variety reports that Lin hasn't even been, uh, you know, extended an offer to, uh, that actually he is but one name in the running. Uh, another name that we have previously mentioned that is uh, rumored to be in the running is, of course, Arrowverse head honcho Greg Berlanti. Now, who is... Uh, Dan Lin. Well, Lin is a uh, producer who has produced several movies for Warner in the past, including uh, the Lego Movie and the Lego Movie Two, as well as the Lego Batman Movie, which admittedly, admittedly, awesome movie. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes films that uh, feature Robert Downey Jr. Um, uh, also, uh, a few other movies, including It and It Chapter Two, uh, were produced by Dan Lin. So. Um, what what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Uh, you know, beats me. Uh, it's very difficult from that particular portfolio of movies to judge if he's the right guy to shepherd an entire superhero cinematic universe. Um, big reservation, of course, is that according to the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, initial report that he uh, Dan Lin would actually be um, reporting directly to CEO David Zaslav, uh, so he would completely be bypassing Warner Brothers Pictures bosses uh, Michael DeLuca and Pam Apti, uh, as well as the HBO and HBO Max chief Casey Boys and uh, even Warner Brothers Television chairwoman woman Channing Dungy. So, in other words, uh, this would basically be. Uh, entirely resting on Lin's shoulders without any real uh, additional input from other people involved in uh, the movie uh, and television and streaming worlds. And of course, based on some decisions we've seen Zaslav make so far, I'm not 100% uh, sure that 
having his be the only other voice involved when it comes to making major decisions for DC cinematic features or television productions, that that is the best way to go. Chris, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm afraid that I can't offer a whole lot of input on this. I've seen some of those movies that you rattled off, but, uh, you know, how much influence did Dan Lin have on those? Who's to say? Um, Lego Batman was was an incredible film, a lot of fun. Uh, the first Lego movie was fun as well. I enjoyed um, those Sherlock Holmes films for, for the greater part of them. But does that qualify someone to be, you know, uh, the grandmaster of this entire cinematic universe uh, going forward? Who knows? How much does he care about, you know, DC comics? And, and does he have that love for the medium that Kevin Feige has, who's to say, who knows? And, you know, the more that, that I hear coming out of, of David Zaslav, the less confidence that I have going forward. And I think that's absolutely uh, a fair assessment. Um, there's, there's been all sorts of interesting statements made uh, by Zaslav and by reporters who uh, appear to have sources within the organization that seem to uh, indicate sort of a big shift um, that I'm not uh, 100% convinced is a shift in the right direction. So it, it remains to be seen if Dan Lin is, um, is is the guy for the job and maybe can curb some of Saslav's, let's say, um, more unfortunate opinions and impulses when it comes to how to run uh, this new merged company. All right, Chris, what have you got for nerd news this wonderful week it's it's very much in line with with that uh not even the dark knight himself dave is safe from the warner brothers discovery purge the animated series uh the caped crusader a joint project uh, from matt reeves jj abrams and bruce tim will not be released by warner but remains in production with the hopes of teaming up with another streaming service according to the hollywood reporter who broke the news initially their sources say, quote, it is believed that the various Warner divisions making the shows and movies will make more money on the titles by selling them to other outlets than having them on Warner's own streamer, end quote. Among streaming services, courting the Cape Crusader are Apple, Hulu, Netflix, and more. Dave, every single headline from Warner just immediately takes me back to that clip from Dodgeball where Jason Bateman's character Pepper Brooks infamously says, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Not sure that I have much more to comment at this point. Yeah, the, the, the thing with this whole Batman situation, I mean, it, Paul Dini is involved in this sucker, right? Uh, Bruce Tim. I don't know about Dini, but I know Tim. Okay, so Bruce, Bruce Tim obviously has a, um, um, a you know, a long pedigree record. with yeah, yeah, and a proven yeah. track record, and not and not just that. Um, on top of that, uh, here's here's something to consider, and that is simply that Batman sells, and even DC has figured that out. You know, the comic arm uh, produces so much Batman content, it has become at this point um, almost laughable, right? So the fact that uh, of all the things that you would go ahead and, you know, try to uh, get rid of this Batman product... Uh, because you're, I guess, trying to move away from animation. And then no wonder all these other streaming services try to jump on it, like, you know, a pack of rabbit dogs on a bone with a little bit of meat stuck to it. Um, obviously, there is something there that could have made some money. And it is, once again, just absolutely 
um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like it seems so brain dead to take such a proven commodity as Batman produced in part by a proven commodity like, like Bruce Tim and then say, Oh, we're we're just, we're not going to do that because we don't like animation. Like, you know, this, this is just so baffling to me, Chris. Yeah. And unfortunately I don't think that there's any much, a whole lot more that we can add to this rather than it's, it's completely tone deaf um, to treat animation this way. Um, I, I, I got, I got nothing else, man, unfortunately. I'm right there with you. All right, that wraps up Nerd News segment. If you have more to comment than, than we can muster today, please hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or at ThatNerdDave and ThatNerdChris, respectively, uh, individually. But after this, our first break, we're going to head back in the time machine to 2002 or 1970. Uh, not sure. But Spider-Man 2002. Coming up. All right, we have gathered our forces for this week's byword. And we're going to start off. Um, I don't know if this is going to be a fix or not, because especially the second film in this in this trilogy is widely regarded as perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest in some camps, uh, comic book movie, superhero film of all time. So I did think, though, that it would be interesting 20 years later, um, especially off the heels of No Way Home and seeing Tobey Maguire return to the role of Peter Parker to revisit this trilogy and see just how well it holds up and if we have any holds ups. And um, we're probably going to have to fix three. Um but this week we are looking at Spider-Man from 2002, Maguire, Kristen Dunst, Willem Dafoe, Rose Harris, and James Franco. Um, and so, in typical um, format for the byword, we have three likes, three dislikes. We have uh, titled them appropriately as our holds up elements and our hold ups. So, Dave, what is the first thing? that uh about spider-man that really holds up for you well to me it's the supporting cast um i think that a lot of the people in quote-unquote minor roles in the movie absolutely knock it out of the park i think saying that uh, the portrayal of J. jonah jameson is probably one of the greatest um comic to live action transitions of a character ever is probably not an understatement like jameson is my god that's that's jameson it's so so perfect it's not even funny um, I'd also argue that this is probably the best Aunt May portrayal um, in any of the Spider-Man movies, um, just for sheer comic book accuracy. I think uh, Aunt May here feels like she literally leapt off the page. I know the you know Sally Fields was quite good in the role as well as was uh, you know Marissa Tomei with the progressively younger Aunt May's. But if you're looking for like sheer comic book accuracy from you know, the main Marvel universe as portrayed in the comic books. I think this is pretty much the Aunt May right here. I also think that that Franco is a really, really good Harry Osborn here. He captures that sort of James Deany angst that 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 Harry Osborn has this and is tortured, you know, daddy doesn't love me, but he likes my best friend better than me. And that that conflicted, I like Peter, but I also am jealous of him thing. 
I think Franco's really good here. I think his performance kind of goes down the toilet as the uh, as the trilogy goes on. But here he's pretty darn spot on as Harry. So I just I think the entire supporting cast is really really strong, um, and I, it it really makes the movie um, just really watchable, even in some of the slower parts. Chris, yeah, I think um, while I think that Rosemary Harris was perfect in this film, I respectfully disagree. And continuing the thread of showing love for animation, uh, Lily Tomlin would like a word because. Uh, Lily Tomlin is as Aunt May in Into the Spider-Verse. And this just might be like a different felt flavor or different take on the character. Because I also love Ultimate Aunt May. Um, she's got that bad, you know, like single mom vibes. And and um, and Lily Tomlin truly delivers. So she's my favorite Aunt May. But like, that's like splitting hairs. So I think Rosemary Harris is fantastic here. Um, I, I did I did qualify live action so now oh you did okay you did say that okay miss I missed that bit yeah I mean the it was really surprising here because I remember how much I love JK Simmons as Jameson here it was really surprising to see uh he was only in like two scenes here so that was a that was a surprise in revisiting this and you know James Franco is a very complicated character with the allegations that have been levied against him in the last few years but I really think that he is very, very good in this role um, in, in so much. So, in fact, that I think it's it's in some ways an upgrade over the comics. You know, a lot of people buy into the fact that Harry and Peter are just best friends and that's just a given. But um, a lot of of comics content, I just don't see that friendship there. And while I don't get why they're best friends to begin with, I think the. We could have used a little bit more of development there. Something as simple as like he's a private school transfer. And like, so he feels kind of like an outcast. And that's something that he and Peter bond towards. So I could use, could have used a little bit more there, but I buy their friendship. Like I, it, it works for me here. And if you're thinking about, you know, just live action portrayals, we only had a couple, um, uh, of Harry Osborne, and this is pretty much the one uh, where you buy the friendship because I certainly didn't in uh, in the Amazing Spider-Man two. Uh, that that did not feel like a real realized friendship in any way, shape, or form. Oh, that was despicable. The Dean DeHaan one, where they like skip, yeah. skip rocks on the water, and then all of a sudden we're supposed to care about their relationship. Yeah, that was gross. Yeah, that didn't work. All right, Chris, what is uh, something that you thought totally held up? And uh, note. I was totally going to put this in, but you beat me to the punch. I did. Um, I think that Willem Dafoe in the role of Norman Osborn in the Green Goblin, like this is still the creme de la creme of, of villains. I, I don't I don't think you may have like favorites, but if you divorce yourself from all subjectivity, I think this is objectively the greatest villain performance that we've seen, not only in comic book movies, but like maybe even in fiction. Like I, I would extend this to any other genre as as far as villainy goes. Like this is this is like Oscar level worthy type stuff. Like his descent into madness and then the multiple personalities of the Goblin and Norman. It, it's straight out of the Lee Ramita era, where like almost you you almost see like the the sparkles on the panels of like where he's going back and forth between Norman and the Goblin. I think, I think it's a, it's a masterclass in acting. It's a tour de force and it only makes me appreciate the fact that he still, you know, kicked booty in, in the role 20 years later in no way home. 
and and really brought it right back. Um, we'll talk about uh, other other elements of the Goblin here in a minute, I'm sure. But uh, as far as acting performances go, like I think that even may have been a hindrance for some of the other acting performances because he was like taking their lunch money. Oh, he wasn't just taking their lunch money. I'm surprised they had any sets left to film this movie on because he was chewing the scenery so intensely. I mean, he was totally hamming it up. But I think he's also one of the actors that absolutely got the assignment. Like, you know, he knew he had to be larger than life. He knew he had to go big. Um, and, and he did, and it was fantastic. I really have very little to add here. It's just, I absolutely love his performance at this. I love the whole scene where he's talking to the goblin mask and he's crawling on the floor and like every, everything that he did in this movie felt right for the character and then the heightened reality of a comic book movie. I absolutely adore his performance. And I was, I remember being so incredibly disappointed in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 for a multitude of reasons, but but one of the, the greatest reasons for my disappointment is I'm a huge fan of Chris Cooper as an actor. I, mean, I remember every science class in middle school, we had to watch October Sky. And so, like, I, I think the world of Chris Cooper as an actor, and I think he would have been um, a, a respectable Norman, but they completely wasted him. Like, and so I'm, I'm still frustrated about that. But yeah, like Defoe is the class here. Absolutely. Dave, your second holds up element of uh, Spider-Man 2002. I mean, the movie's 20 years old at this point, so we can argue back and forth about, you know, the level of CG and special effects and all that. That's all fine and dandy. I'm not really interested in having that argument. I think that Spider-Man as a character uh, moves in a in a very very particular way in the comic books, you know, with very specific motions and poses, and you know, it's become in, ingrained, I think, in you know, comic book fans everywhere that this is the way Spider Man moves. It's so particular and it is so visually striking. And I love that this movie took such pains and took so much time to to try to make Spidey move the way he moves in the comic books to imitate the poses and the motion as much as possible. I think in an interview back then, Sam Raimi referred to it as something like uh, his, his dance, the way he swings from place to place. It's like a dance. And I absolutely adore that because getting Spider-Man's motion right is so intrinsic to the character. Um, that's one of the reasons something like that, that old seventies TV show never quite clicked is because Spidey didn't move like Spidey. It looked, it, you know, hokey, but as soon as you get that dance, right, those poses, that, that movement through the air as he swings, the way he lands, you know, the, every little bit of his motion, they, they went to pains to capture. Now was the CG always great? No, um, by modern standards, certainly not, but, you know, the, the movement of Spidey was, was spot on. And I absolutely love that. Yeah. It, um, as a kid who grew up with the, um, the Fox kids animated series, like it, that was much more faithful in that, uh, you know, adaptation of movement on screen. And so when this came out in 2002, I just remember, but like, this is it, this is, this is right. This fits. And so, um, I think for better or for worse, and I'll talk about this much more in depth later on, I think for better or for worse, uh, and I even previously hinted at it, this 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 is very much pulled out of a Lee Ramita era um, or even like um, uh, a Conway um, Andrew type of, of title. This very much feels like 1970s Spider-Man. And one of the ways in which that works for its benefit is the movement of Spider-Man on screen. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can agree with that. All right, Chris, what is your second thing that uh, you think still holds up about the movie? I think, I think this is a very macro thing, but go figure, it's me. So I think that the influence of this film on subsequent comic book movies or superhero franchises, I think it's I think it's undeniable. You can very much see like the inception of so many different elements that we would come to enjoy in, in subsequent films. And so I think that this film, um, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, I think, I think it stands at a true time of importance. And so from a storytelling perspective, from, um, from a hero versus villain versus, you know, the hero's journey, if you want to go back into, you know, you know, theory. Um, so and I, I really just think that even, even the nitpicks that we'll get to in a moment, I think that the importance of this film and what it means for the genre as a whole um, and its influence is undeniable. Yeah, I think that that's, you're absolutely right. That's pretty much undeniable. Um, I will say, um, you know, when we talk about like the dawn of the modern superhero movie, a lot of people say, well, you know, this, this sucker started with Blade and, you know, not to take, not to take anything away from Blade as far as like the financial impact it had on keeping Marvel afloat and everything. Blade does not feel like a traditional superhero movie. It's not a cape and cowl kind of movie, you know? And then a couple of years before this Spider-Man movie, we had X-Men and X-Men didn't really feel like a traditional superhero cape and cowl kind of movie. You know, I mean, they, they very specifically uh, rejected you know, the colorful costumes, you know, in, in exchange for black leather. So this is to me the point uh, where, you know, Sam Raimi kind of proved that a traditional cape and cowl style superhero movie can work with modern audiences. Um, and, and this is, to me, the linchpin of everything we've gotten since. Um, you know, comic book movies before, uh, you know, absolutely fine and dandy. We had Blade, it was successful. We had X-Men, and it was successful. But neither one of those movies are, you know, a masked superhero movie. This is, and it proved once and for all this stuff works. And so I think everything we've gotten since rolling all the way into the MCU owes a debt of gratitude to this movie. Yeah, I think I think I, I immediately thought of Blade uh, X Men. I try not to think about, um, <laughs> but um, I, I I immediately thought of Blade and and its influence and its impact. But I truly think that it operates in its own territory. So I don't think that it's a apples to apples comparison. Um, exactly. And I I I really love the first Blade film. Um, I haven't watched the second one in a very long time, and I don't think I ever watched Trinity, but uh, I think that's probably a bullet that I dodged or or a, a stake that I dodged, I guess. Um, but I truly think that it, it operates completely different uh, territory, and um, I, don't, I don't think it's like a race to the finish, like, haha, I was first. I don't think that's the measurement that we're going for here or that we should go for. I think you know, no matter where you finish in the race, I think, did you make an impact culturally? And this inevitably did. All right, Dave. Um, this is, this is no surprise because you're, you're a musical nerd like I am. So I'm very, very happy to talk about your third hold up element. I think we have to freely admit that there is probably one weakness uh, in, in modern superhero movies. And that, and that is, that so many modern superhero movies don't feel the need to give 
um, the film a recognizable theme, something that that you hear and you automatically think, oh my God, this is, you know, Spider-Man. This is Superman, like the John Williams Superman score. To this day, we can't get away from that darn score. And, and the reason I think is, is because nobody has given us a strong alternative. Like there is no, this is a really good, recognizable Superman track. You know, this is Superman, except for maybe like the, the intro music to the animated series. I think that one is really, really recognizable as well and comes in as a, at a close second. Um, but if you look, you know, like at the, at the Spider-Man movies, for example, is there a clear Spider-Man theme in the MCU? Is there a clear, you know, Captain America theme? There is sort of a, uh, an Avengers theme of a sort of j- Avengers jingle, if you will, you know, but there isn't a musical track where you're like, Oh yeah, this is, this is clearly the Avengers. What I really love about the score is it's very, very superhero, very big sort of epic. And it definitely, uh, it definitely makes you think right away when you hear the music, Oh, 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 oh this is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Like it just, it's recognizable. It's clear. Uh, it's a very, very good score from start to finish. It really complements the movie. Well, uh, but most importantly, it's just recognizable. Like if if you if you were to make me listen to the Man of Steel music, I couldn't point to Superman's theme in that, or or something that makes me say, oh oh, that's that's you know Zack Snyder Superman. Like there, it's also droney and 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 I don't know, man, um, not melodic, I guess. And the MCU is just as guilty of that. They don't really write themes anymore they write scores sure but they don't write themes and this had a theme and i really really like that i, I think that's a a holdover from older you know superhero movies that really needs to make a comeback you know chris reeve superman had a very clear theme um batman uh in the burden movies had a very very clear theme heck i remember reading an interview was it hans zimmer or something that did the score for the dark knight movies and, they're, and he was like, no, Batman doesn't have a theme because he hasn't earned it yet. And I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> Batman begins, we don't have a Batman theme because Batman hasn't earned a theme? That's ridiculous, dude. You know, like, give, give us a Batman theme. And when he's when he's Batman, he, he can have a Batman theme, okay? Like, put, put on the cape, put on the cowl, boom, Batman theme, please. You know, so I appreciate that about this movie. No, dude. And for me, I think the lasting impact of Matt Reeves, uh, the Batman is that score it's it's the thing that i immediately think of um i mean like dome 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 yeah it's so recognizable dude it's so good comes on screen and you hear that and you combine that with his boots and and it automatically transports you there and and i think that that's another thing that this film does um and and as far as like the mcu spider-man they and I, and I love that they did because it's such an iconic thing. They recycled the the old animated series um, theme song and they set it to like orchestral, um, like a symphonic rendition. And that's great, but like it, it, it doesn't really permeate throughout the entire film. I think you have it throughout certain things, but like it, it, it's not an all inclusive thing like like the Batman is. All right, so what is your final uh, thing, uh, Chris, that you feel holds up about the movie? Well, you know me, I'm a, I'm a feeler. And so, um, like, the fact, w- one of the things about Spider-Man that they absolutely get right here in this film is he is the people's hero. He's the people's champ. <laughs> He's the most electrifying superhero in all of sports entertainment. No, but um, I, I love, like, all of the the corny little, like, new york elements of this film and it's so 
like perfectly representative of like a Spider-Man comic book. Um, and so like the, the, the parts were like, they start throwing stuff at the green goblin. They start like throwing, I don't know what that was like fruit or pumpkins or something. Um, and, and it helps Spider-Man out like, and, and subsequent films do a great job of this too, but like, it was just so pleasurable to see this happen. And, and that, you know, even though the cops are like after him because of the yellow journalism from the bugle and Jameson, like he's still like, well, go, go get him, but I'll be here waiting for you. Um, and, and, and so like, think, I think that's probably the, the overall thing I think that I enjoyed the most about revisiting this film is like, you know, Spider-Man is a man of the people. He's an everyman. And that's what makes him so incredibly relatable and in that he, he does the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And, and that the public recognizes him for that. Yeah, I like that a great deal too. Uh, obviously, there's always uh, in the comic books a lot of, you know, I guess, uh, divided opinion about Spidey. Um, but uh, generally speaking, the people that he has interacted with and has saved and has helped, um, there's always a very clear sense that they know that, you know, what the Bugle is putting out there is a bunch of crap. So they did capture that really well, I think. All right, unfortunately, we have to move into the negative stuff. Um, not the negative zone. That's Fantastic Four. Um, but Dave, what is your first holdup of this film? So obviously I think we have to go back to, to our friend Willem Dafoe and, um, the, the go, go power Rangers goblin suit. Speaking um, of, which, speaking of iconic scores. Yes, absolutely. Bring on that electric guitar. Um, I really, really feel like the goblin design is totally booty in this movie. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pleased that they did a lot to sort of rehabilitate the design in um, in No Way Home uh, by smashing that horrible helmet and, and adding some accessories that make him seem a little more goblin-like as far as what the comic book design goes. You know, uh, I'm sure you've seen it. It's made the rounds for several years now, and it keeps popping up on social media occasionally. There's an animatronics test for a goblin mask that has made its way online several times. Um, and it's a little more authentic to what it, you know, looks like in the comic books. And I really think um, the ultimate comic books made a really good argument for it not being a mask, but there being like a physical transformation uh, that, you know, kind of like werewolf style where the goblin, you know, is, is uh, physically different from Norman Osborn rather than him just putting on a rubber mask. And I think if they would have leaned into that, and used that animatronic, which I, I tell you, man, I think that animatronic test was great. Um, it was really, really cool and would have given the Goblin a very, you know, different kind of vibe in this movie, a face that really goes along well with the performance that Willem Dafoe turned in. So I'm very disappointed, particularly that they didn't use that, that animatronic face mask and instead, you know, went for a helmet where you can hardly even see uh, Willem Dafoe's face through. And it kind of, it stifles the performance. And I know you, you, people are going to say that are listening to this, you know, well, an animatronic mask would have not seen his face at all. No, because the animatronic would have been a replacement for his face. You know, it would have been a completely different look and we would have had something that's extremely expressive. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look up that animatronics test, um, it's a very, very, very expressive face that they put together there. Um, and, and it would have been a far cry better, I think, than what we got. So I, I really, really dislike the goblin design in this movie. It still irks me 20 years later. Um, I'm, um, maybe this is my hot take. I don't like either suit. I'm not a fan of the Spider-Man suit either. 
I think it's very representative of 2002. I don't think it's timeless at all. Um, I think my greatest nitpick of the spider suit is the eyes. They look like like cheap stick-ons. Um, like like they look like press-on nails that you did yourself, and it does not. It doesn't look good. Um, similarly, I guess I always go to the eyes, but like the pointless, the most pointless thing I think with the goblin costume is the fact that his yellow lenses go up and down like at will but like for what reason like it's totally pointless yeah so there's there's so much to make fun of here and and i absolutely loved what they did in no way home um with that character design i think it's much much more representative of the character yeah i totally agree with that man all right what's what's your uh first thing that you kind of think does not hold up uh well i've, I've got a couple of subplots here or sub points i guess but i i have major major issues with the cast um the fact that we have 30 year olds portraying high schoolers and not just 30 year olds but like visibly older than high school age like it's not even close not even believable that they would be in high school um particularly mcguire um that kind of went away for me once they finally graduated and so i know that this is an origin story so you kind of have to start in high school but the fact that they're even trying to portray high schoolers i think it's just it's laughable um joe manganiello as flash thompson looks like uh, like a predator because he like he's a 35 year old man that goes back to torment high school children. Like it, it's just not a great look. Um, and then I kind of had an epiphany. Um, well, first, before I get to that epiphany, um, Maguire is Peter is really weird in this film. We kind of talked about it on social media a little bit in, in advertising for this episode. But he comes across as extremely unlikable. And he comes across as, um, I guess the the gauche term right now is an incel. And um, he comes across, I said that he comes across as a, a potential school shooter. And that spider biting him saved countless lives that day. Um. I have real problems with high school Peter in particular in this film. Uh, it is not representative of, of anything in comics. Now, Lee Ditko Peter was a jerk and he, but he was not like this. I, I think this is a, I think this is a missed opportunity here. Um, and, and I don't really buy his Peter until halfway through the film. I think the turning point for me where I started to buy it was the speech in the hospital with MJ. Um, That was a great turning point and a great performance by McGuire. And I started to buy it there. Um, And then my epiphany as advertised, I, I, I really ragged on Kirsten Dunst for a long time. And like, almost like a, not my MJ kind of, thing but i'm not campaigning like that because i'm not a lifeless loser on social media at least i like to not think that i am but i kind of saw something here because it's not a bad performance but i i think she's miscast as mj and then it struck me kirsten dunst is gwen stacy 
like she's she's naturally i think like a brunette so like she could easily and she's done roles where she's been blonde before the hair color doesn't really matter i really think that she's gwen stacy she's she is i think the comparison between the two and i've made jokes about how gwen stacy tell the cows come home but i think that the power of gwen as a character um is in her understated nature and her quiet strength and i think that that's something that that dunst really brings well to the role i think that in contrast the the prototypical mary jane watson is what we got in emma stone so it's weird like this role reversal in Emma Stone's Gwen, she's vivacious, she's lively, she is she is the pants wearer in the relationship. She is the controlling figure. And so it's it's like we have this body swap. Because I think Kirsten Dunst would make a fantastic Gwen Stacy. Um but I I, I don't buy her as Mary Jane. Like she just she, she it's it's just not there for me. But she is good in this role. I think it's just the wrong girl. There's there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> so yes, I cheated. Uh, once again, I cheated. It's like four. It's four holdups in one. Yeah. So I think the casting issues I think are perfectly um, fair. Um, I I think that yes, having always you know grown people trying to portray teenagers is um, troubling, I, and I can tell that they were trying to. Uh, avoid at least some of that by getting them out of high school as fast as possible. You know, like we didn't get a whole lot of high school hijinks. I mean, in the first part of the movie, boom, they're graduating. Hallelujah. So uh, they try to get them out of there fast, but yeah, it, it, the high school scenes don't work because everybody looks like they, like they were in the movie Greece with John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, you know, like, you know, 40 year old people playing high school kids, what it felt like. So um, I, I totally will echo that. Um, you might have noticed that when I said something that holds up is the supporting cast, and I did not talk about the main cast. <laughs> and that's because the center of the movie, uh, Tobey Maguire and and, and um, Chris Dunst, uh, I don't think worked uh, very well in this movie, um, looking back at it. Um, and, and, and that's partially, I think, what's on the page. Um, and it's partially, I think, some choices made in the acting. Um what didn't work on the page very clearly from the get go is, is the portrayal of, of Mary Jane. I don't think she is, she, as you said, written as Mary Jane. I don't even think she's necessarily written as a Gwen Stacy from, from what I know from her. I think Kirsten Dunst would make a great Gwen Stacy. Sure. But I don't, I don't think there was a strong role uh, in that character for, for any female actress. I think the character is very passive. I mm-hmm. think is the best yeah. way to put it. Yes. Um, with without a clear um, arc, I think, really, I think she's very reactive to the men in this film. Very much so, yes. Um, so I found I found that disappointing um, in in Mary Jane, and and Toby he does not come across as a nerd in this movie. He comes across as a dweeb. I think that's the best way to put it. Like you know, there are there are nerds that are a little outcasts because they're just you know nerdy, and, and then there are dweebs that just they're a little nerdy but they also just make people feel deeply uncomfortable you know like like somebody walking up and and, and taking your picture randomly and you just know darn good and well he's going to have it on his computer later on staring at it creepily with the lights down low um that that that's sort of how toby comes across in this he never quite clicks for me as a likable peter parker especially you, you especially were... when he's taking pictures that's very yes. creepy 
and you noted um that uh, the, you know the hospital scene um where he's talking about about mary jane um that that that's a place where it clicked for you i hate that speech so much with a passion like i just absolutely <laughs> hate it i i hate to say this but it is so i it's like I need I need two bottles of wine with that cheese, you know. And I like cheesy stuff. I love Superman, you know. And there's a certain amount of of cheese built in with with Superman, you know. But the thing about Mary Jane is that when you're with her, that you just don't feel quite normal. <laughs> like, okay, um, thanks for that. Uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but that's just creepy. Um, so so even there, he just didn't quite work for me. He just never quite clicked for me as as Peter Parker. You know, Parker to me is is a guy that is not necessarily completely socially inept, you know? Um and he he does not usually come across as creepy or or even mean spirited necessarily unless, you know, um I don't know, man. I th- I think I'll talk about this more in a minute, but I I think that the main cast didn't quite click looking back at it. Um and the love story for sure didn't click, especially knowing how it progresses over the next couple of movies. Uh, in hindsight, I just I don't like the way the love story is portrayed with any, in any way, shape, or form across these movies. All right, let's dive right into that because I've hinted at it and teased it, and so have you. And I'm really interested in talking about it at length. The movie has a distinctively old-fashioned vibe, uh, and, and you know Sam Raimi, in a lot of ways, is sort of just an old-fashioned movie maker. You know, he likes um, being an old-fashioned dude; like he radiates that. And yeah, now I know he's he's an old guy now, but we got to remember there's also a, there's also a rebel underneath all that. You know, if you ever look up, you know, the making of the first Evil Dead movie and how they did that, I mean, uh, the guy the guy has a little rebel in him too. Um, but once he became a more successful director, he just became deeply old fashioned. Um, and that, that radiates off of him, even on set. If you've ever seen any pictures of him on set, he's always wearing a suit and tie. Um, he, he very much is like, I'm going to come to my, my work looking as professional as possible. That's not necessarily normal for directors these days. So he, he's an old fashioned dude and he has old fashioned sensibilities. Even in his horror movies, he likes to do these extreme close-up quick zoom things that you know haven't really been in vogue in scary movies in a long long time um he does that quite a bit in spider-man 2 when it comes to uh doc ock that whole scene where the arms come alive with the doctors around them that's very much old-fashioned you know horror movie style filming and he's really in his element when he does that so he has old-fashioned sensibilities um and and this whole movie feels like an old-fashioned sensibility and maybe he's on to something at, at the very least with some of the things about Peter, because Peter very much feels like he's, uh, you know, not really a teenager, but like an old soul. Like he really strikes you as somebody who's oddly old fashioned for 2002. Um, you, you believe that a 90 year old woman raised him like, you know, he's, <laughs> he acts like he's he acts like he's 50 in some of these scenes, you know, in, in how he talks and, and his whole attitude. So I think I think. The movie is incredibly old fashioned, and I think you're onto something when you say it's very much something that is steeped in like the the sixties and seventies comic books. And I wish they would have made it a period piece for that reason, because it's really, really jarring to have a movie set 
in 2002 that feel so old-fashioned in so many different ways and yet is supposed to be a modern movie like if this would have been a movie set in like you know 1967 or something i think this would have clicked completely differently and i think we would have even forgiven maybe a little bit how passive um how passive Mary Jane is in that movie, because that's sort of a hallmark of movies from that time period as well, is that, you know, the female lead tends to be more reactive um, than, than in modern movies. So I, I think as a period piece, it would have worked a lot better, this old fashioned vibe, but as it stands, it just felt awkward. Yeah. It's so, it's so noncommittal. And I think that's to its detriment because, um, and I'm, I'm interested for a multitude of reasons to revisit the sequel because, you know, it's held up as the best, um, but I still think that that it is non-committal with its setting because it is. I, I mean, I I look at even like Peter's fashion choices, and I'm like, yep, this is Lee Romita. Yep, this is the 1970s. Uh, I, all he needs is that like brown jacket with the fur inline, the faux fur, and 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 we're there. Um, but yeah, and I think the fact that it doesn't completely commit to the bit is for its detriment because at the same time it's like oh yeah this is the 1970s kind of vibe but here's macy gray <laughs> and uh here's dr the thing that the thing that holds up the absolute least is that macy gray cameo it just like macy gray it was not uh, regrettably a a artist that stood the test of time and stayed in the popular eye for very long so it just like immediately dates this movie just that she's even there it's it's even worse than vanilla ice in the second teenage mutant ninja turtles <laughs> movies it's just like it's so like well that person nobody gives a crap about for already 20 years yeah and then she tries to walk away and she stumbles um, and then you try to hide it, and then you try to hide it, but it's clear this movie, this movie's dated when it is not there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, it, it's really funny that you say Greece because, um, you know, we just lost Olivia Newton-John here recently. And, and I, I think the world of Greece, uh, as, as campy as it is, I was a kid that was raised on musicals like Greece. So I absolutely love it. Oh, I love it too. Yeah. I, I, I love it so much. I love Olivia Newton, John, you know, Lord Rester. Um, but I think what I wanted from MJ in particular was that Sandy turn, you know, at the end, it's still like one of the most iconic scenes in film history and cinematic history is like, the tell me about it stud turn like I, we needed that from mj like that's something that you need and and we didn't get it and it's and it's to its detriment all right chris what is your next doesn't hold up moment of this movie the wrist zits i mean like you know how long do we, do we need to spiel about it it's it's so disgusting it's so gross it's i i tell Tell me that Sam Raimi is a master of horror without telling me because of these zits on his wrist. It's not even anatomically correct because he would be shooting the webs out of his anus if we wanted to go for a completely anatomical spider thing. Um, it's, I, I don't know what to say about it. Um, they made a great referential joke about it in No Way Home. It's so creepy. It's so gross. It undermines the genius of Peter Parker. The fact that he's like, well, I've got all this other spider stuff. I might as well use my brain and, and come up with, you know, a web fluid. And so, yeah, it, it's just disturbing. I hate him. 
Um, I hate the organic web shooters. I hate the fact that they tried to integrate them into the comic books. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, no. Um, no. No. Uh, no. I'm done. All right. We've danced around your last holdup, but let's go in full force. Yeah, Spider-Man is not Spider-Man in this movie personality-wise. I mean, I love the way he moves and everything. I think that was spot on. But Peter Parker doesn't feel like Peter Parker. Uh, we, we noted already earlier that, that Toby feels more like a dweeb and not like a nerd. Um, and there was something about Peter uh, in the comic books. He did connect with people. He wasn't like socially inept or something, which it seems like Toby Maguire's version of Peter is just incredibly socially inept and oblivious, oblivious just oblivious especially when it comes to stuff about mary jane or stuff about harry and as this trilogy goes on he just seems more and more oblivious like there's zero growth in this in, in, in this human being but one of the things that that kind of bugged me the most is the complete absence of of any kind of quippy spider-man-ness you know like there's no motor mouth spider-man in this movie he is not he's not shooting off one-liners or trying to throw his is enemies off by you know saying something funny or there's none of this there's a really what what did we get you're out of it gobby out of your mind uh that's one that was super thanks um and then we get that one homophobic moment in the wrestling ring ah you took it that's from me. Cute, i was about to go with it yeah this, this this that's a cute outfit did your boyfriend make it for you that that's what we get from spidey um and so n- no uh the, the personality is completely wrong of both Peter Parker and Spider-Man in this movie. Um, and again, within the context of the movie, I guess it works, that old-fashioned sort of classic Hollywood veneer over it. Um, but if, if you're looking for like a really good adaptation of who Peter Parker is and who, who, who Spider-Man is in the comics, this ain't it, regrettably. Yeah, I think that's something that both Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield nail. Now, there are plenty of things to criticize about the Amazing Spider-Man film franchise. But one thing that I keep going up for and, and, and writing for is that Andrew Garfield nails the Peter Parkerness of it all. And it's a very, when did that movie come out? 2008? 2012? Somewhere in there? It's 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 a yeah. it's a late aughts early tens vibe of Peter Parker. It's very much of its time interpretation, but I think it works. And a lot of people say, "Oh, he's too handsome." There's no way that he would be an outcast. I'm like, okay, this is from the same people that like loved movies like She's All That, where Rachel Lee Cook removes her stereotypically nerdy glasses, and suddenly she's the belle of the ball. Like, get out of here with that. Um, so I I, I really enjoy garfield um in particular from that because it's it's a believable thing like once you get past the social outcast the 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 dork of it all like of course he's going to make connections with people like and that's something that lee ditko gets right from the jump of like yeah he's a nerd but like he's still pulling liz allen he's pulling betty brant he's pulling mj and gwen like He's not an idiot. He's not inept. And, you know, the, the best... And, and, whoever, and whoever said Peter Parker was not a good-looking guy is my question. Like, are we looking at the same art here? Um, and, and, and so, like, I, I think it, it, you're totally right in that. And then, for me, the quintessential parts, one of the most quintessential elements of Peter Parker, of Spider-Man in costume, is the quips is the fake it till you make it way over your skis and you overcompensate for your own lack of confidence by 
you know, dragging your opponent by coming up with stupid little nicknames. And it's really regrettable that the the only time that we got something that was remotely like that is a homophobic joke about, you know, uh, whether, you know, Macho Man Randy Savage or Bonesaw is gay. Like, okay, that's the best that you got. And then, you know, it, it's... I was, it, I was it, hoping, it, I was it, personally... It, I was personally hoping for a, for a Kool-Aid Man joke. I think that would have been great, considering what <laughs> Macho Man Randy Savage sounds like when he talks. Or, you like know, we could, I, we... I, I, I would have gone so mad and be like, you really sound like a knockoff Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a, oh yeah. Uh, there's there's so many uh, the, the better things they could have done with that. Like, it's just, yeah. Or even, or even here's another meta one. What, who do you think you are? Crusher Hogan? Like, come on. Ah. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All that right. Was, final, that, was uh, with, that was with no prep time. Like, come on. Come on, guys. Yeah. So 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 give it to me straight, man. What is what is the last thing that you th- didn't think held up? Yeah, this is my greatest pet peeve, not just for this film, but um not just this trilogy, but for all Spider-Man films ever. Please stop unmasking for no good reason. Like it, it's quite enough. It's the willful unmasking as well. I think um, it's it's inexplicable uh, with the the robber scene with Uncle Ben's killer. He just like rips his mask off. Like, what did you hope to achieve there? Doesn't put it back on when the spotlight comes on him. Uh, it's it's just really really strange. I, I so it's it's my greatest pet peeve. The unmasking of it all. Um, they do it at the end because of battle damage and singeing of the mask. It's it's I'm 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 over it. I think the uh, the the best. So so here I think what it comes down to is that it's a lack of faith in the actor's abilities that you constantly have to take the mask off in order to let them perform. I think it is perfectly valid that you can have an actor whose face is almost completely obscured or completely obscured and still get a good performance out of that. Um, And that's really what's required with Spider-Man. Instead of constantly taking the mask off and running around without a mask on, you have to be willing to trust the actor's ability to perform with the face obscured. I mean, that's what you're looking for, right? You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with, with body language, with voice. There are things that you can do to still have a great performance, even though the mask is stationary. Uh, and so I think that's really what they keep doing the unmasking for. I think the ending with the battle damage is perfectly fine. I buy that. It's not the first time that's happened in, in Spider-Man comic books either. So I buy that. But every time that he keeps taking it off... Um, or it's taken off from him, it becomes sort of a running joke almost in, in the Sam Raimi trilogy, how often the mask just so happens to be removed. You know, and it's it's it gets a little silly at some point. I totally agree. Yeah, I think it's also disingenuous because he's so concerned with like his identity being known and, and as a result, his loved ones um you know being threatened i mean it's the whole reason at the end of the film that he can't be with mj or whatever like the tropist of all tropes uh tropiest of all tropes but and so and then for like it's one thing to be unmasked but then like he always just like oh god let me get some web fluid or something you know some kind of way to obscure my identity and and maintain that i mean like it's it's probably like one of the most identifiable things about Spider-Man is maintaining that secret identity. And for them to go so loose with it is just frustrating. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, so those are our uh, holdup elements and our holdups with Spider-Man 2002. Uh, when we come back from our final break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we are back for the fan favorite segment of every episode. None other than our very own... All right, Nerd Nightmare is right around the corner, and you are way too gleeful, my friend. I'm always gleeful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so I think I think we're going to have to just talk for a second about The Walking Dead. Um, not the television series, because boo on that. Um, they, I think they kind of ran that into the ground. But I am a huge fan of The Walking Dead comic book. I think it works on so many levels, and it is wonderful. Um, it's over now, you know, it's had what, uh, God, hundred and God knows how many issues, but it is wrapped up. It is complete. Um, and it, it stands now as a, um, a finished work that you can enjoy from, from beginning to end. Um, and so I, it's, you know, I, I kind of had trepidations when it was announced a, a couple years back, I think that they were going to re-release in single issues, all of the walking dead in, full color that they were going to go back and color a series that originally had been, you know, designed and published in black and white. And so um, I'm a big, big fan of black and white art when it is done intentionally and with purpose and not as a cost cutting measure of an indie comic that can't afford a colorist, you know, but if you go in and it's intentional and it's purposeful, um, I love black and white art. I think it is an art unto itself. So I had a lot of trepidation about the notion of having um, the the Walking Dead re-released, this time in full color. Um, And so initially I stayed away from it. And then more recently I decided to reread a couple of issues that have since been, uh, you know, released in color to kind of just get a, uh, get a sense for what, what is being done with it. And I have to say, um, the colorist uh, that was brought on board, uh, I believe it's um, uh, Dave McCaig, is knocking it out of the park, dude. I think he might be converting me. Um, I still really, really love the black and white look of the Walking Dead comic, so much so that I wish they would have done the television series in black and white, too, to match that look. Um, it's just a very, very cool look. But, man, when you look at some of the more emotional moments that happen in the comic book and then see the color choices being made, it looks so cool, man. It, it's just... I, I don't even know how to describe it. He, it's not going for, like, a fully 100% realistic look. There's a lot of interesting things happening with our color shading and stuff. Uh, you know, some of these moments, like, um, uh, there's a, an issue uh, for, in issue 14... There's this this moment where a character is is dying and then comes back, you know, as a as a zombie, which happens so much, you know. Um, and there's just this bluish greenish hue over everything, um, and then the blood in the scene really just kind of pops out and slaps you in the face. Um, it is so much better than it has any right to be. So I love, love, love the original Walking Dead comic book. I love the black and white art, but I am so impressed. Uh, with Dave McCaig and how he is going about coloring this book and the color choices he's making. I could, I could talk about that at length and I think it would be fun even just to sit down and like kind of go through a whole bunch of issues and just kind of 
analyze the color choices he's making because he's not just going in and like slapping a coat of paint on this. He's very, very intentionally, you know, putting his, his, his stamp on the art that already exists and making very, very cool artistic choices and trying to enhance the storytelling. Um, so I, I, I kind of think I'm in love, Chris. It's, it's funny that you say that. Um, I think, you know, with the advent of nerd nightmare and your not so subtle attempts to horrify me, the one element of, of horror that really still just does not landed with me is zombies. And I don't know why. Um, maybe, maybe we need, um, another zombie flick for nerd nightmare this year, because the only one that I have is, um, is night of the living dead. And that one just made me furious. And, and I love to poke fun at. So I think, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to blow your mind. Are you ready for this? Okay. I think, I think it would be fun to watch the Dawn of the Dead remake, which was directed by this, this little director that you've probably never heard of by the name of Zack Snyder. Oh no, not the S word. And, and, uh, yeah. And I think, um, uh, James Gunn actually had a hand in the script. It is a very, very interesting, uh, interpretation of Dawn of the Dead. And, uh, although it has some very, you know, sort of 2000s uh, things going on in it, uh, it, there's shockingly some really cool stuff in there too. So yeah, I just endorsed a Zack Snyder movie. So what? Blow my mind. I see what you did there. Not so subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Chris, what is your nerd commendation this week? I feel like Michael Corleone right now. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. I'm, I'm back in. I'm all in, baby. House of the Dragon, the premiere episode, as the time we're recording, we've only had one episode so far. Daggone it, I'm right back in. And I have completely like purged from my mind the second half of that last season. It's so good, dude. It's so, so good. All right, so this is a prequel series to Game of Thrones. Um, it's it's based off of A Song and Ice and Fire novels by George R.R. R. Martin and um, a little bit more specifically, the novel Fire and Blood. It's set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, 172 years before our Lord and Savior Daenerys Targaryen. Um, praise be upon her. I, uh, I love, I love it already, man. It's it's so well done. It's so well acted. Your boy Matt Smith is fantastic as this unlovable scoundrel Daemon Targaryen. He's truly a POS in the best way possible. Um, I I I legitimately can't stand him. And, um, but I mean, he does a great job at it and, and the show and a work of fiction is only as good as its villain. And he really brings it already. Um, the cast is out of this world. So, so, so good. I mean, it's freaking dragons and the, the impending civil war um, amongst the house Targaryen. I, I just can't wait to see this unfold and all of the the different, you know, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo is my all time favorite work of fiction. It's my all time favorite novel. It's my favorite thing ever. And one of the things that really draws me in is the soap opera of it all, and the scheming and the political behind the scenes type of big brain moves and the strategy. It's all a game of you know, chess thrones. Uh, you, well, Hey, there you go. <laughs> and it's, and it's already setting up to be must see television and I'm right back in, right back in. 
I, I, I tried. I keep trying. Maybe I just need to sit down and try to read the books, but then I'm going to be mad that it seems very clear that George R. R. Martin is never going to finish uh, Game of Thrones. Like, it's just not going to happen. So I, I don't know, man, um, if, if I can go there. Uh, I also have this, this trepidation, generally speaking, just about fantasy. It's not something that connects with me as strongly as sci-fi does. And so uh, oftentimes when I try to, um, when I try to read uh, fantasy, I just I fail to completely connect with what I'm looking at. Game of Thrones, despite my uh, repeated attempts, I have not been able to connect with. Um, in fact, I would say uh, the last uh, 20 years or so, the only thing fantasy-wise that I've really 100% fully connected with is The Witcher. Um, I, I just I feel that stuff, man. It's just my jam. It's also the um, horror elements, let's be honest. And and, and uh, there's probably <laughs> a part of that, absolutely. Although I will say a lot of what happens in the, the short stories, at least to me, feels a lot more straight-up fantasy and a lot less horror. And I'm thinking, for example, the story with the Golden Dragon, you know, like oh, that, that was that so... Oh, my God. It is so straight-up, you know, fantasy, right down to the point where the, the you know, three Jectors and, and Geralt go to like a... A, 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 an inn and they just like keep eating and eating and eating and just like every little meal gets destru- described you know <laughs> it's that's it's very you know old school fantasy and it's still one of my favorite stories from from either collection so yeah I, you know fantasy i think needs to kind of hit me a certain way for it to just work and game of thrones never has and i feel maybe from what i've seen uh from the television series there's something like mean-spirited about it almost you know, like it's not not mean spirited necessarily towards the characters, but mean spirited towards the reader. You know, in in that every time you think you have a character you connect with, they do something horrible to that character. It's like designed to mess with you or something. Um, so I I don't know about like connecting with it. I love Matt Smith, and he's not made great choices post Doctor Who in projects. I would like to see him succeed in something because he is so very good. Um, and so I wish this show all the best. If I'm actually going to be able to try to sit down and watch it, I don't know. Yeah, um, I feel the same way with Reese Fons. I don't know how I didn't do that in my initial sell. Um, but Reese Fons, I, I love him. I love him as Xenophilius Lovegood in in a property that I struggle to revisit now in Harry Potter. Um, yes. He's fantastic there. Um, he's acting as took us off in the amazing Spider-Man films as, as the lizard. I loved seeing him come back in no way home. Um, love him as Kurt Connors. And so um, it's funny that you say that because I was so excited to see him in this first episode. And then he did something absolutely despicable. And I'm like, I hate you, but I love you. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it was very, very much that. But if you struggle with fantasy, Dave, don't worry because by the time this airs, we'll already have, uh, the rings of power on Amazon prime, which my, my, my dirty little secret of course is that I also don't enjoy the Lord of the Rings all that much. So listen, you keep throwing zombies at me. I'll keep throwing elves and dragons at you. (laughs) Hey, I like elves and dragons. They're fine in the Witcher. I just, I don't know, man. Lord of the Rings is is an odd one. No, it is. It is. uh, And I've talked about this. It is the least approachable for me. I'm a very, I, I want, I deeply want to be one of those elven translators. Like I can, the old elven stuff that I can read. And I, I deeply want to be um, a head over heels Tolkien fan. It's just so 
unapproachable and it is not new viewer, new reader friendly. And it is an all consuming thing. It seems like such a task and it does not seem welcoming. And yeah, it's too much work and not I, welcoming I say, enough. I say, yeah. I say that, you better believe September the 2nd will have already aired. By the time this episode airs, we'll have already seen it. I'm going to be there. Well, obviously, I mean, you, you need to, you know, watch the continuing uh, adventures of fantasy Eminem, right? I mean, that's what we're needing to do here. Stop. <laughs> I will. Uh, you know, I think what we need to do is we need to go on social media and just throw it out there and ask, hey, what's the most approachable new reader friendly fantasy series we love elves we love dwarves we love dragons we want to read the stuff but you know these things don't sing what would sing for us you know like if if we like the witcher then you know what 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 else what else is there that can get us into fantasy because i I would love i would love to love fantasy you'd be hard pressed to find something more new reader friendly new gamer friendly than the witcher i love every every iteration of it the game uh hunt is fantastic the books are out of this world. The audiobooks. I here's the thing: we're working on a project that's been literally years in the making, uh, Dave and I, and uh, I'm really struggling with it because the audiobook that I'm listening to, it's not the guy who did the Witcher audiobook, so it sucks. So like every audiobook yep. that I follow after that, I'm like, it puts me to sleep. So yeah. Yep. Yep. That's true. All right. That puts. The cherry on top of another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you for riding along on this dragon with us. And as always, please be sure to like and subscribe to whatever podcasting platform is your preference, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Amazon, or nerdbyword.com. And of course, find us on social media on Instagram at, and uh, Twitter at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And most importantly, I want to know. How can you convert me to be a bigger, bigger fan of fantasy? Please, for crying out loud, tell me. If I like The Witcher, but I struggle with Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, what might be something that would make my heart sing? And go to those social pages. Click that link in the bio, our link tree. You can find oh so many things, including our merchandising websites on TeePublic and Redbubble, our socials, and all the goodies. Uh, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.